It is a, a real privilege to be here and to be with you again. Not again, but uh, I've been with you before just in other situations. I remember the first time I came to this church, you were meeting in a school, and it's come a long way since then. And uh, I have a lot of history here. Um, a lot of the staff, I, every time I walk in the building, I feel like I'm at an old home week because a lot of staff has uh, either been in life action or traveled with us at some point. Trent, your founding pastor, uh, traveled with me for three years before he started this church. And, and I appreciate those of you that have been around for a long time. You've helped my son, Jeremiah. Your church has planted that church in Pennsylvania that my son pastors. And so I appreciate all of those of you who have been a part of, of that. So I have a lot of uh, respect for your church and appreciation and gratitude. And so kind of privilege to kind of jump in here today. I want to give you a premise, what I want to share with you here this morning. And the premise is this, that the best, the safest the most productive place to be is in the fog, the flood, and the fire of the Father. Have you ever faced a time in your life where you didn't have answers? Have you ever thought, man, God, if you would just explain this to me, if you just tell me why this happened or why that took place? I recently did a funeral. My father-in-law passed away it's about a month ago, and I was doing the graveside service. His name was Roy. He was 92, lived a great life, had a great family. And I said, you know, the fact is I envy Roy right now. Roy is in a place right now where there are no more questions. I mean, have you just ever thought, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why this happened or why that? I said, Roy is in a place, he has no more questions. Secondly, he has no more temptation. I want to be in that place. No temptation. And thirdly, he's in a place with no tribulation. We're, we're sad because he's gone, but I envy him. No questions. No temptation, no tribulation. That sounds like heaven, doesn't it? That's a great place to be. But until then, until we get to heaven, we have to learn to trust. And, and I want to suggest to you that the best, the safest, and most productive place to be is in situations where you can't always explain, you can't always see. Let's talk about that for a minute. The, the, the fog. Do you like fog? I, I'm not a big fan of fog. Um, I drive a lot. We travel across the country, and, and um, you know, right now we're facing all this fog from Canadian fires and whatever here in Michigan, Indiana. But I, I don't like driving in fog. Much of my life is, is filled with that. I think the worst driving experience I ever had was we were here in, uh, we live in Buchanan. We're driving to Midway Airport, take our son to the airport for a mission trip he's going on. And we got up and it was just one of those days where you could not see in front of you. I, mean, I couldn't even see my own cataracts. I mean, it was just, uh, uh, it, it was horrible. There, there, was, there was birds and ducks flying every place. It was foul weather. And it was just a, uh, one of those days where you're driving along and you can't see what's coming behind you. You can't see what's ahead of you. And, and I'm, I'm used to fog. I'm used to rain. I grew up in Oregon. In Oregon, we have what we call Oregon or, or Washington mist. It missed Washington got Oregon. And so I, I'm used to, you know, that kind of... Uh, scenario. I mean, our, our, our mascots are the ducks and the beavers. That tells you something about Oregon. So I'm, I'm used to that weather. I went to school in California for a while. There's a school in California that was named after a weather event. You know what happens when the fog lifts over Los Angeles? UCLA. Okay, anyway. Um, <clears throat> there, but, but there's a lot, that, but, but there's a situation of fog where, where you can't tell what's happening in your life. And sometimes our life is like that. We're just all fogged in. We're saying, God, what, what is happening here in my family? What, what's happening in, in my life? I, and, and you just, you, you don't know the next step is, ha- is coming about, it happened. Secondly, there, there, there's a, uh, not only fog, but I, I don't like to get wet. But sometimes God puts us in a place 
where there's wetness. This was uh, Niles, Michigan a couple years ago. I was traveling someplace. I saw this. That's the Wonderland Theater downtown. Remember the St. Joe River a couple years ago overflowed? You, you can't stop the power of uncontrolled water. And, and, and sometimes life is like that. We just feel like we're being run over. I don't like to be wet. I, I, I do like to golf. Some people like hunting and fishing. I go golfing because I could do all three at the same time. Uh, look, <clears throat> play on the beach too. But, but some people golf anytime. I don't, I don't like to golf when it's wet. That's, that's not fun to me. I only golf, I, I shoot in the 70s. If it's any colder, I'm not going to go. And, and, and some people do it, but, but there's something about being wet and being in, in the floods. And sometimes our life, it's just like, it's over, we're, we're underwater. And we're, we're trying to get to the top. And, and maybe you're like that right now. Maybe there's a, a circumstance in your life that, that's bringing you to that. Thirdly, there's, there's fires. My uh, sister lives in southern Oregon. This is a picture taken not too far from her house. Not too long ago, you've, you've seen all the wildfires in the last couple of years out in Oregon on the West Coast, and, and, and this was not too far from her. There, there's, there's, there's nothing fun about fire. I don't even like to watch movies about fire. I mean, they, they, they're, they're, they're in burning buildings, and people are gagging and choking. It is not, that's not entertainment to me. I, I was actually talking with the fire chief. I was in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I was talking to the fire chief there. And I said, you know, I see these shows where they're, they're showing these people in this scene, and they're having a conversation. There's fire all around them. And, they're having, and I said, that doesn't seem realistic to me. He said, it's not. When you're in a burning building, there is smoke. Unless you have a mask on, you're gagging and, smoke and choking. It is not a fun place to be. And sometimes our life feels like that. Maybe you find yourself right now in a choking, gagging, burning scene, and you say, I, I just want out of this. I don't know where your life is right now, but I want to suggest that the best, the safest, and the most productive place to be is in the fog, the flood, and the fire of the Father. Now, now this goes against our common sense because some of our conditions and circumstances are not enjoyable. And, and it makes us wonder, God, are you even paying attention? Do you see what happened here? Do you see what happened with my kids, with my marriage, in, in, our, in our country? Do you see what's going on? About two and a half years ago, my wife Debbie uh, got cancer. And, and, and it put us in a fog, a flood, and a fire kind of all at once. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a pastor of a church, and so I, I'm not around sick people a lot. I, pastors make hospital visits, and I've just not been around that. And we had to learn, how are we going to deal with this? Now, this is kind of a, <clears throat> a little rabbit trail, but this is worth writing down. This is something I found about how to pray for people that are sick. And if you're walking through people all around you struggling with physical things, here's how you pray for people. First of all, you pray that God gives them healing. It's fine to pray for that. Now, God doesn't choose to heal everyone. But, but you, start, you, you start there. There are three reasons for sickness. Sickness unto death. Sometimes you pray for dying grace. There's sickness under chastisement. Sometimes you pray that God will teach them what they need to learn. And then there's sometimes sickness under the glory of God, where God is going to heal that person. So the first thing you do is you go to God and say, God, would it please you? Would you heal this person? But if they're not healed, secondly, you pray for understanding. God, would you, would you help them to understand what's going on here, what you're trying to teach them? Sometimes there's no healing and there's no understanding. So thirdly, you pray for encouragement. Sometimes just being there, just holding their hand and visiting them is all that they need. And you say, God, would you encourage this person in, in, in the, in the situa- scenario that they're in? And sometimes there's no healing. There, there's no understanding. We don't know why. There's very little encouragement. So the fourth thing you pray for is trust. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Do you really trust God? 
And will you place your tree? We sing, man, that song, I will follow. I love that song. We, 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 we do those things, though. We sing those songs. We say those things about God. But in reality, are, are we really doing that? I'm, I'm going to give you this morning three quick flannel graph stories. Now, if you're under 50, you probably don't know what flannel graph is, okay? But uh, for those of us that are older, in the, in the earlier days, before all the um, contemporary um, um, internet and all the stuff that we have now with screens and media and so forth, most of us learned our Bible stories in Sunday school because a dear little senior adult lady would come in with a piece of flannel on a board and she had these little flannel graph characters and flannel sticks on flannel and she would say, here's Adam and Eve and here's Moses and here's Noah and whatever. And we kind of learned our Bible by watching our Sunday school teacher use flannel graph. And, and I say flannel graph because these are three familiar stories that probably if you've been in church for very long at all, you know these characters in the Old Testament. And I want us to learn something about these three lives. The first one is this, in the fog with Job. In the fog with Job. Now, turn to Job chapter 1 if you'd like, in your Bible. And, and obviously, we don't have time to preach all 42 chapters. It'd be, we'd be here a while. But let me just give you the overview. Here's Job. Job 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. We don't know where, know where Uz was because Uz no longer is. But we know Uz was because Job lived there. Is that clear? Okay. Anyway, here he was, and, and he was incredibly wealthy. He was the greatest man in the East. That's the greatest man in the world because all there was was the East. Notice what he had in verse 3. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. That would be 1,000. 500 female donkeys, and all the servants to take care of that. I tried to figure out how many servants would it take to carry, take care of all that livestock. I, I mean, he had probably at least 250 servants, at least, probably more. And, and you know the story, perhaps, where Satan says to God, yeah, well, you're blessing him. That's why he follows you. And, and, and God says, no, he'll follow me anyway. And so Satan has permission to, to get to Job. And, and I was reading this through recently, and, and the thing that startles me is the timing of all this. Chapter 1, verse 13. His kids are eating together someplace, and verse 14, a messenger comes and says, the oxen, remember, 500 head, 500 pair, and, and, and the donkeys were feeding. The Sabians came, and they slew them. All of them were dead. All the servants, I alone escaped, to tell you. Now, here's the, here's the thing. While he is still speaking, verse 16, he doesn't have time to process this huge loss. While he's still speaking, another comes in and says, there, there's another problem here. Um, God put down something from heaven, and, and, and all of your sheep, 7,000, all the servants taking care of them, and they're all gone. I alone am there to, to, to escape. And look at the next phrase, while he's still speaking. <laughs> it's not like he's got time even to process this. While he's still speaking, another one comes in and says, uh, the Chaldeans formed bands, they came, they killed all your camels, all the servants took care of them, I alone escaped. This is not happening over months or weeks, it's not even hours, it's just over a few minutes. And then all, everything he has owned financially is gone in an instant. That's nothing compared to the next verse. And while he is still speaking, doesn't have time to process, everything materially is gone, the real blow comes in. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking near your brother's house, and a wind came, and the house collapsed, and they all died. And all the servants, I alone, escaped to tell you. You've had bad days. I don't think there's ever been a worse day in a, a single person's life other than the Son of God when he died on the cross. I, I can't think of anything, everything materially gone, ten children gone, every, all at once in, in just a few moments. 
And what did Job do? Did he, fist, did he throw his hands in heaven and say, God, you're horrible? Look what he did. And Job arose, tore his clothes, shaved his head, fell down, and he worshiped. What an individual. He looked at things through the eyes of God. And, and he said, I came naked from mother's womb. Naked will I return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look at verse 22. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That is not our normal response. Our normal response is, God, are you kidding? Are you asleep? Did this fall through the cracks? What is the deal here? How did he do that? How could he go through that? Now, I want to tell you, even though Job had a perfect response initially, it didn't stay there. It's not wrong to question God. You're not going to get answers, but, but, it, but it's not abnormal to question him. David does that. And Job, you read through these 42 chapters, and these friends come in, and they're trying to tell him, you know, here's the problem, here's the problem, and Job's arguing with them. And Job comes to a place where he does start questioning God. Chapter 29, he, he, um, he says, what about the good old days? He says, there was a time in Job 29 too. He said, when, my lamp, when your lamp shone over my head, he's talking to God. And I, I walked through darkness. I was in the prime of my life. <laughs> That's gone for most of us. And, and my, my friendship with God was over my tent. The Almighty was with me. My children were around me. Verse six, my steps were bathed in butter. Really? I like butter, but I'm not, anyway, <clears throat> that, that was pretty exciting for him. Uh, and, and everything was going good. The, the, the road for me was, was uh, paved with streams of oil. I went out of the gate of the city. People cared about me. The young men stood up and take notice. The princes stopped talking. E.F. Hutton even listened. And everything was good for me. Those were the good old days. But then in chapter 30, verse 26, <laughs> now, now things are different. 30, verse 26, when I expected good, then evil came. You ever had a day like that? I, I watched for light and darkness came. I'm seething within. I cannot relax. Does that sound like you? Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and I, I cry out for help. I've become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute with those that weep, even his guitar was out of tune. And in all of this, he finally comes and throws out his big question, chapter 31 and verse 35. Here's his big question. Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. God, I want an answer. Would you tell me why this is going on? Why this has happened to me? When you're prone or tempted to ask God why, <laughs> then, then, then look at what God says to you. Chapter 38. <laughs> I love this verse. Chapter 38, verse 4. Let me ask you something, he says. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the world? Let me ask you. He goes on and he says in the, in the next uh, few verses, he says in verse 12, this is chapter um, 38. He says, have you ever commanded the sun to rise in the morning? Have you ever told the sun to set at night? When I created everything you see, Job, where were you then? You want answers? If you can explain to me how to rule the universe, then maybe I can give you some answers. You know, the problem is we're demanding answers from God, and the problem is not that he can't give them. It's we can't comprehend them. Because God has founded the universe not on justice or fairness. He has founded it on wisdom. 
And it's so far beyond it. And so he says, listen, Job, were you around when I did all this? Do you expect to understand the, the things that I cannot even explain to you in ways you could ever comprehend? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? What he is saying is, you've got to just trust me. And, and Job in his final analysis says, okay, you're right. You're God, I'm not, and I'm okay with that. And whatever is happening in your life that you're wondering why, why this person did this, said this, until you come to a place where you can say, you are God, I am not, and I'm okay with that, you're not going to go any farther. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get answers. Adoniram Judson was the, the first missionary, first missionary ever from America. I went to China. You're familiar with China Inland Mission, perhaps, and what's come since that. Here, here's what Judson said. He said, the older I get, the more the will of God becomes a fog. I don't like that. I, I thought the older I got, the more I understand the Bible, the more it makes sense. The, you know what I realized? The older you get, the more complicated life gets. Didn't you think that someday you were going to have the answers and you were going to kind of settle down and kind of collect shells on a beach someplace? I've got like 32 people under my patriarchal canopy with my kids and grandkids, 20-some grandkids and so forth. And, and the, the longer I go, just the more complicated life gets. And, and we're sitting there saying, I want this all to make sense. I want this to be figured out. And, and it just doesn't happen that way. And, and, and the older you get, by the way, I'm officially old. I, I know that because I injured myself gardening. I was planting some flowers, the next day I pulled a muscle. I said, honey, I, I injured myself gardening, I'm officially, you can know you're old when you stop referring to your knees as your right and left knee, but the good one and the bad one. <laughs> you know you're getting old, right? And, 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 and we think, well, it's gonna change. Listen, some of the greatest men that have ever lived, there, there's a man, George Mueller, many of you are familiar with him. He started orphanages in London, 2,000 orphans. And, and he had no resources, he had no money. He has a book of over 10,000 answered prayers. And, and the, the most famous story is they're, they're, they're sitting around the table, the bowls are on the table, there's nothing in them, they have no food, nothing in the pantry, and he stands and he blesses God for the food. Nothing there. And while he is praying, he gets a knock on the door and a baker says, God woke me up in the middle of the night and said, you need to make some bread for this orphans. And, and I, I got up at 5.30 this morning, can you use the bread? And while they're bringing the bread in, a guy comes in and says, you know what, my milk truck broke down in the street right in front of your orphanage. I can't get it to where it needs to go. It's going to spoil. Could you use the milk? And, and answer to prayer after answer to prayer. And here's what, here's what, here's what you said, Mueller said. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the God who controls every circumstance in my life. Wait, he's in the fog? This is the, the greatest man of prayer, perhaps, that we know. And yet, in the middle of that, he said, I'm still in this fog. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm not focusing on the fog. I'm focusing on the God who controls every circumstance of my life. So my question is, where is your eye? Listen, I don't have to know more. I have to trust more. See, when is God going to show up? When is God going to show up in my marriage or with my kids or physically? I, I, I can't see him coming. Even if you can't see him coming, doesn't mean... He's not just around the corner. He's never late. I, I'm, uh, I'm from the West Coast, and uh, I like mountains. Now, the, the highest point in Indiana is a place called Hoosier Hill. Now, I am glad they don't call it Hoosier Mountain. It's only 1,200 feet high. In Michigan, the highest point is Mount Averon up in the UP. It's like 700 feet higher, and they call it a mountain. That is not a mountain. If you've never been to the West Coast, then you've never seen a mountain. 
I'm from Oregon, Mount Hood's like 11,000 feet. That's like two miles higher than the highest point in Indiana. There's another mountain in the West Coast. It's about 60 miles from Seattle. It's called Mount Rainier. It's 14,000 feet high. It's 60 miles. This, this is a picture of from downtown Seattle. But the problem is you can only see this mountain 83 days out of the year. Because the rest of the time there is so much fog, you don't even know that it's there. I, I was in a meeting some time ago and a lady came and she said, I, I'd moved to Seattle. We'd been there two weeks. I walked out in the backyard one day. I said, honey, come here quick. And we walked out there and here was a 14,000 foot mountain. We didn't even know it was there. We'd been there two weeks. And you only see it one fourth of the time. Now, the mountain is always there. But because of the fog, you don't see it. Has it ever moved? No. The fog is the plan of God. It is the place of God. If you're praying right now that God would bring revival to your life or God would bring deliverance from some tough situation, a wayward child or a physical issue or a difficult marriage because you want your life to be easier, you need to change the trajectory of your prayers. It is not God's will we want. It should be. We want our convenience. You need to stop saying, God, I don't want my convenience. I want what you want for me. And you may never understand why. We were, um, we, we, I'm learning a lot of things about this, this cancer process that Debbie's in. And um, so, so she got diagnosed two and a half years ago. So two years ago this summer, she had to go in for surgery. And she's going to have a mastectomy. And it was, it was, it, it's a lot that goes into just the, the mental preparation to get ready for that kind of a surgery. And so we took her to the hospitals during the COVID deal. And so um, we walked in, they, you know, asked her these questions and, and said she had to take a COVID test and she tested positive and she had no, it was asymptomatic. She had no symptoms. It was, it was, it was not a false positive, but because she tested positive, everybody put on their hazmat suits and, and, you know, they, they took her back into a room. And, and uh, so she was in there for like four hours. The phone didn't work. I couldn't talk to her. The doctor before her surgery before went bad, and so, so he was later, and so they came and they said to me, we, we were in there about, got in there about noon, he's not going to be able to operate until six, you won't be able to be with her for three days because uh, she, of the COVID protocol, and, and, and so I finally got a phone to her, and, I, and she said, hey, I can't do this, and I said, you're right, so, so we said, we're, we're, we're not going to do it, we're going to have to wait. They said, well, you have to wait two weeks because you have to wait for the protocol to go through. So we went home. Man, we were just so dejected. It's like, God, we, we got all ready for this. We're prayed up. We're, you know, emotionally ready. And now, you know, this miserable day and waiting two more weeks. And it was just like, really, God, really? About a week into the, the waiting time, we were out to eat with some friends of ours from Life Action, um, John and Donna Avant. And we were eating and and uh, the waitress came up, and she had tattooed on her arm, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And I, I grabbed her arm, and I said to the, our table, I said, look what she's got on her arm. I said, do you know what those verses say? She said, no, they're just my mom's favorite verses. She said, I have her, her prayer tattooed on my side. Do you want to see? No, no, that's okay. That's all right. That's okay. <clears throat> Uh, but I said, here's what those verses say. And I went through here. It's a love chapter. And it's talking about God's love. God is love is patient. Love is kind. And I walked through the passage telling her about God's love for her. Through the meal, she was just so receptive. And, and, and as she would come back, we would have conversations and talk to her. And, and finally, at the end of the meal, John said to her, now listen, we've talked to you throughout this meal about, about Jesus. And if you want to become a follower of Christ, I want you to think about it. And, and if you want, just come back and, and we'll take some time and we'll pray with you. No pressure. She, went away, she, she was back in like 20 seconds. You know, I, I, it was the most low-hanging fruit I've ever seen. She said, I want Jesus right now. 
And so John started praying. I said, John, just a minute. I said, now, now listen. And I went through the gospel. I said, here's what this means. This is not a ticket to heaven. This is a giving of your life. I, I, I talked about what Christ did for us. I shared what repentance is. I talked about following the, the Lord and, and, and the Lordship of Christ. I wanted to know this is not some magical words to keep her out of hell. This is a, and, and I, is that what you want? She said, yes. John led her through and she, she prayed and received Christ. As, as we were leaving, Donna said to Debbie, you know, if you had had your surgery a week ago, we wouldn't have been here, we wouldn't have this conversation, and she wouldn't have met Jesus today. Now that time, God explained it to us. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes things get canceled, sometimes things happen, and we never know. But the fact is, I, I, was, in a, I was in a meeting some time ago with a pastor um, uh, gave me a book. It's, it's, a, it's a great book. I, I, get a copy of it if you can. It's, it's called The Moon is Always Around. It's, it's a, a children's story about how to help a, um, a child understand a miscarriage. And it's a story of a, a boy and his father, and they're out looking at the moon. It's in the sliver stage and, and commenting on it. And, and the dad says, even though it looks like a little sliver, the moon is always round. You just can't see it right now because it's being blocked by the sun, by the, by the earth and, and so forth. They, they go on the story and they're, they're camping and it's in the half moon stage and, and, and they comment and the dad says, but the, but the moon is always round. You can only see half of it right now, but it's always round. A little later, they, they're looking at it and it's in the three-quarter stage. It looks like a squeezed up orange and, and the father says, but, but the moon is always round. And then in the story, the mom goes in to have this child and, and, and the child doesn't survive the delivery and so she comes out without a child. And so they're, they're, they're having the funeral and, and the, the dad is the pastor and he's talking to the congregation and, and he says, listen, God is always good. We can't always see the goodness of God. Just like the, the moon, we, we see it in different stages, but we know it is always round. We just can't see it. And, and the moon is always round, and God is always good. And, and we got this book about the time we were wrestling this thing with cancer, and so that, that's become our mantra through her cancer experience, that, that God is always good. We can't always see that. Just like the moon is always round, God is always good. It takes trust. And just because I can't see the roundness, I know that it's there. I can't see the mountain, I know that it's there. Vance Havner said that God writes across some of the days of our life, we'll explain later. <sighs> Do you have any of those days? We say, God, I don't understand this. God says, I'll explain later. Do you trust him enough to say, God, I don't have to demand of you? I was in a meeting some time ago and there was a couple in this church, they were like Ken and Barbie. I mean, they were attractive. They had, they had they'd grown up in, in great families. Um, they were both successful in their business. The, the lady had been Miss some state in the Miss America pageant. I mean, they had just had, they had a family. They had everything going for them. The trajectory of their life was just perfect. And about a week before we got there, something happened in the lives of some of their kids. And it just devastated them. And Debbie and I met with them during the meeting and tried to give them some input. We met each night in the services that we were having there. And, and, and one of the spouses responded pretty well and, and, and said, he's God, I'm not, I'm okay with that. The other spouse, not so much. About six months later, I was talking to one of the spouses and, and, and seeing how it was going. And, and, they, and they, they, they said to me, I, I think my, my spouse has this attitude. They're saying, God, now if you will explain to me why you let this happen, and, and promise not to do it again, and ask forgiveness, then maybe I'll forgive you. 
And I thought, that is such a picture of where many of us are with God. God, if you'll explain this to me, tell me why, give me the reasons, then maybe I'll trust you again, maybe I'll follow you, maybe I'll listen to you again, but until then, I'm history. Now, we wouldn't say that. By the way that we live, that's what we do. When are you going to say, you're God, I am not? And, and I'm okay. Back, back to Job. Job had a relationship with God. These friends came, and they wanted to prove it was Job's fault. They had to find a reason they could understand, because if, if they didn't, then that meant that bad things could happen to them without explanation, without, because they did something wrong, just because it was God was going to do something. And, and they didn't have to know about it, and they didn't want that. But Job had a relationship. And so at the end of Job, he says, all my life, I've heard of thee with a hearing in the ears, but today my eye have seen thee. I repent in dust and ashes. He saw God for who he really was. And when he saw that, he saw his sin for what it really was. And he said, you're God, I'm not, and I'm okay with that. Do you want deliverance or a relationship? Do you want deliverance from your situation? Or do you want to say, I want to know God so intimately, I'm going to choose to trust him in such a way that no matter what comes, God does not have to explain to Steve Canfield how he runs his universe. He doesn't have to explain it to you either. And until you're okay with that, you're going to be upset and bitter and wrong, and, and every bitter issue starts with God. Bitterness at a person is not at a person. All bitterness is ultimately directed towards God. And until you come to the place where you say, God, I trust you, you're not going to go any farther. I took too long on that one. Here's the second one. It's the story of Noah. These last two are real quick. I don't need to go through the story of Noah. If you want to turn, you can. It's in Genesis chapter 6. And, and you know the story. The world is, is a mess. And so God in, Jonah chapter, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. And he says, I'm going I'm to destroy them all. I'm sorry I even made them, verse 6 says. Verse 8 of, of Genesis chapter 6 is, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. Now, now this, this was, a, it needed explanation to build this huge, if you remember the ark, the ones over here that's a replica, it's huge. And you're going to build this huge vessel in the middle of dry land. There had been no rain at this point. All the earth was watered from the dew. And so they didn't know what rain was. How are you going to get this shipped someplace? And listen, this was not an overnight project. He didn't start till he was 500 years old, and it took him 100 years. And so for 100 years, he's building this vessel. Imagine the ridicule he faced. Has God ever directed you to do something that, that just seems stupid, countercultural, like you were swimming upstream? At times, it's like the whole world is against you. And that's not a bad place to be. So the whole, they're mocking him saying, what are you doing building this ship in the middle of no place? And then it started raining. Now here's the thing about Noah. Noah wasn't in the flood. Noah was in the boat. The boat was in the flood. You see, from, from Job's life we learn that God doesn't have to explain things because he is sovereign. From Noah, we learn that it's not about whether you're in the flood, it's whether you're in the boat. He is our salvation. That boat is a picture, the ark is a picture of our salvation. And Jonah was in, it's okay to have the ship in the water. You don't have the water in the ship, that's when you got a problem. And we are in the world, it's okay for us to be in the world, but you don't want the world in us. We are to be as a, a, a ship is in the sea. And, and so here was Noah, he got into the boat. The, the storm is coming, the, the whole world is being destroyed. But he's okay, 
We, we are in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you're in Christ. So in the midst of the storms and the frustrations, and I, I don't know what's going to happen in our culture. I don't know what's going to happen in our politics, what's going to happen with world war or whatever. I, I don't know. But I, but I know if I am in Christ, if I'm in the ship, then whatever the flood is, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Listen, we are all in a process. Life has ups and downs. You, you may be right now riding a, a wave of wonderfulness, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to eventually crash into the shores of inevitability. And sometimes life just stinks. Tell the person next to you, sometimes life stinks. They may not know. Sometimes it just does. And in the midst of those stinking times, what are you going to do? Are you going to throw in the towel? Are you, are you going to say, are you going to be like Noah? I mean, I'm sure Noah had some questions. How long do I have to endure being laughed at? When is this going to be over? God, hurry up. Our, our father doesn't often change his plans when we're too stupid or rebellious to see how wonderful they are. But, but he does rearrange our circumstances to get us back on board with his restoration movement. And the overwhelming flood of water was really a merciful, restorative movement on behalf of Noah. And, and it was a snapshot of the merciful, restorative work of God that he was going to do on behalf of Israel. And on our behalf, the goodness of God leads to repentance. And God is always good. Charles Spurgeon, incredible man. Uh, if I can't remember who said something, I just say Spurgeon said it. I figure if he didn't, he probably should have, right? But, but uh, of all his quotes... Of all the things he has said, this is my favorite. Spurgeon said this, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I love that. Have you done that? Have you learned to kiss the waves that are throwing you up against the rock of ages? Another Flandreff story, if you grew up in church, you heard was Peter walking on the water. You know the story, there's this big storm and, and Jesus is walking across the lake of the Sea of Galilee and, and the, the disciples, they think they're gonna die and they say, help Jesus over here and Jesus comes and, and Peter says, bid me come and Jesus says, come on out. And so Peter steps out and starts walking on the water. He gets a few steps and says, wait a minute, I can't do this. He starts looking at the storm and all of a sudden he starts sinking. The, the focus of your eye determines the stability of your steps. As long as his eye was on Jesus, he was walking on water. When his eyes got on the storm, he was sinking. The focus of your eye determines the stability of your steps. What are you looking at? What are you focusing on? Are you in the boat? The, the, the fact that Noah was safe was a great thing for him and for his family because he was in the place he needed to be. The, the storm was all around him. You know what the name Noah means? It means rest. That's another word for trust, isn't it? Psalm 37, 7 says, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Just other people may be prospering, but don't worry about that. Other people carrying out wicked schemes. God, how come the wicked are prospering? It's okay. Don't fret, rest, trust. Here's the last one. We, we already read this passage. This is in Daniel, but you can turn if you want. Daniel's and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here they are. And I've just called this in the fire with smack. Smack stands, stands for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and company. Okay. And so, so, so here they are in the fire. So, so we, we learn that Job was a picture of the God's sovereignty and Noah a picture of salvation. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are a picture of, of God's ability to provide and give us everything we need. That he is always sufficient. The sufficiency of God. 
the, the story that we read earlier, the, the, the father didn't pull them out of the fire. And God's not going to pull you out of hardship and suffering. That just comes with following Jesus. But he does promise protection himself for the purpose of, of cultivating a vibrant faith in your life. And it'll be worth every bit of the painful process. He didn't deliver them from going in the fire. He went in there with them. In fact, he led them in the fire. And, and, and he will be with you any place you have followed him. Now listen, these Old Testament stories are, are just a foreshadowing of the gospel perspective that we see in the life of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, there's not two books, old and new. It's all one book. And the Old Testament is just talking about the new. And, and all these Old Testament people are a foreshadowing of the New Testament story. For Jesus, the, no fog of dread, no flood of undeserved torture no fire of suffering was too much in light of the weight of his father's will and the future fulfillment of, of, of joy fulfilling that will. His own faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ through his fog and his flood and his fire is the victory we enjoy even in the midst of ours. So, so we don't lose hope because Jesus has gone through all these things. He's faced it all and he's come out victorious on the other side. Listen, on the other side of the mess is always the faithfulness of God. You may be in a mess. You may be angry. You may be upset. On the other side of the mess is always the faithfulness of God. On the other side of the Garden of Gethsemane was the garden tomb where Jesus would emerge from the dead and, and bring a new kingdom and a new creation. On the other side of the sin and the sorrow and the suffering of the Garden of Eden is the garden city, the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more sin and no more suffering and no more sorrow. On the other side of every mess is the faithfulness of God. But we've got to trust him in the fog. We've got to trust him in the flood. We've got to trust him in the fire. We've got to trust him in the threat of uncertainty. We've got to trust him in the instability of our political system. We've got to trust him in the midst of our family failures, in the midst of financial setbacks in the midst of other physical sickness you're facing. I'm challenging you today to embrace the waves that are throwing you up against the rock of ages. If you will do that, God has something for you. If, if you want to receive anything else from him, you've got to start by embracing the things he has brought your way, embracing those waves and saying, God, I trust you. I'll close with this. A pastor grew up as a missionary in Africa, and he wrote recently about a trip that he and his brothers took to the western edge of Zimbabwe. Among other things, they planned to take a rafting trip down the Zambezi River. It's a river that's most famous because at one point on his journey, it crosses or fills the Indian Ocean and Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls is the largest waterfall in the world. It's about a mile wide. Massive amounts of water crash over it at a, at a thousand feet high. It, it shoots water up 50 miles away. You can see the mist. It's shooting up in the air and the, the roar is deafening. The villagers call it the smoke that thunders. And, and the water that rushes down from this waterfall create a, a, a torrent and create the world's largest rapids. In the United States... Rapids are rated on a scale of one to five, and, and five is the, the most you can legally go down. They're found in Oregon, actually. But the Zambezi River has a rating of seven, and in flood stage, even an eight. And so they're, they're going to go on this rafting trip. Here's what he said. He says, I sat on the edge of that eight-person raft, 
all suited up in a tight jacket and thick crash helmet. I wondered, is it that dangerous? But then I heard our guide say, when the raft flips over. <laughs> Wait, he didn't say if the raft flips over or in the off chance we get flipped over, but rather when the raft flips over, stay in the rough water. He said, you'll be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water at the edge of the banks of the river. Don't do it. It's in the calm, stagnant waters at the river's edge where the crocodiles are waiting for you. I don't know about you, I want my money back right about then. <laughs> now listen, here's what happens. We get in the midst of a situation and we say, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm out of this marriage. Now listen, I'm not saying you should stay in an abusive marriage. There are some times where you do need to leave. But, but other than those cases where it's safety or protection, we get in a tough situation with our kids, with our boss, with our government, with, with our church, whatever. And we say, I'm out of here. I'm going to find some place where it's easier. I'm going to swim to the banks. But listen, it's, it's, it's in those banks. It's in the stagnant water where there's danger. David, when he was supposed to go to battle, stayed back, sent Joe about committed adultery, treason, murder. The battle didn't need David. When he went out there, he was going to be sitting back from the front lines anyway. The battle didn't need David, but David needed the battle. And the same thing is true for us. We need the battle. We need to stay in the rough water. And what I want to challenge you to do today is to say, God, I trust you. You don't have to explain to me. I, I would like that, but, but I don't need that, God. I, I trust you. You're God, I'm not, and I'm okay with that. And I'm going to stay in this marriage. I'm going to stay committed to this child. I'm going to stay committed to this relationship that's difficult. I'm going to stay in the midst of this. I'm not going to get mad at you and demand that you ask forgiveness or explain to me why this physical situation or why this circumstance is taking place. You're God, I'm not, and I'm okay with that. God, I trust you. And I want to reaffirm that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. Would you go to God right now? Whatever the fog, the flood, or the fire that you're facing right now, just say, God, I, I don't understand it. But, but I know you're too wise to make a mistake, too loving to be unkind. And I, I want to challenge you to go to God right now and just say, God, I believe you, this, the place I'm in is the best, the safest, the most productive place to be. I want to see it through your eyes. I trust you. Tell God that right now. Tell him you trust him. Father, I don't know any circumstance that people are facing here. I, I know mine. And I want to I reaffirm to you that I trust you, that you're God, I'm not, and you don't have to explain to me. And I thank you that you have provided salvation, that I am in Christ, and that you are all sufficient I would like explanations, God. I'd like to know why. I'd like to know when it's gonna be over, when it's gonna change. 
but I'm, I'm just saying to you, God, I'm, I'm not going to run from it. I'm, 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 I'd like to. But I know it's in the rough water that you're going to mold me and change me and purify me. And so I'm going to stay there. And I, I pray, God, for every person here that's listening, that they do the same.